This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. I feel like I just want to go up to CPG entrepreneurs now if they're building a food product and be like, Oh, you don't have a crunch? <laughs> <laughs> Short the business. <laughs> Welcome to another episode of Our Future Podcast. I'm your host, Simran Sandu, and I'm joined by my co-host, Michael Sakan. We're two guys in our early 20s who sold our startup to a major media company, and now we study other young founders and share the strategies and tactics they use to win in business. Today, the boys are back together in person at Founders Inc. in San Francisco. Truly incredible space and incredible energy. And as usual, we're covering two founders who are absolutely crushing it in their industries. So, Mike, you want to get us rolling? Our first story is Griffin Spolansky. He's a 26-year-old who's dominating in the CPG category with his snack bar brand, Mezcla. His founding story is kind of like the fairy tale Little Red Riding Hood. So, his grandmother had a great recipe for salad dressing. And a 12 or 13-year-old Griffin would go bottle up the salad dressing and bring it to various stores. And he actually got it into a few stores. Like, go ahead, you know, he's got a great entrepreneurial hustle. Uh, Ends up starting a clothing brand at 17, entrepreneurship's in his DNA. That didn't really go anywhere. But while he's a student at University of Virginia, he has a speaker come in, and her name's uh, Coco. And Coco is doing a granola brand. And he's inspired by Coco because... She's bringing like different spices and flavors into what is normally a pretty boring vanilla product, right? Just granola. And she was infusing it with all this exciting stuff. And that's kind of where the name for mezcla comes from. Uh, Mezcla in Spanish means mix. So kind of how do we mix different things into like more boring products, right? It's a huge category. You know, there's a ton of activity in it. And they're bringing that same thesis of let's spice up this category. Let's bring some some more unique features to, you know, what most people would just look at as kind of a basic energy bar. So that's what we have, Mezcla, uh, in Whole Foods across the country. It's selling millions of dollars a year now. You know, it's funny. We met Griffin several months ago in kind of a spontaneous uh, connection. I, both of you guys were on the under 30, and we were kind of exposed to his story then. What we didn't realize is how many millions of dollars he is doing with yeah. this business. And, yeah. you know, when we had the chance to talk with him, it was really interesting because he told us that America loves crunch. So a yeah. lot of the winning strategy in what he's building right now is the actual texture of the product, right? Mm-hmm. How does he describe it? It was like a, it's a, it's a crunchy protein yeah. bar, but it tastes like a rice crispy. Yeah. He's a uh, p- trademark. This slogan, it's like, it's a puff crispy bar. All right. Copyright, right. 
you know, Americans, they love big cars. They loved, uh, they love craft singles and they love the crunch, you know, <laughs> <laughs> like for Mezcla, it's, uh, kind of like a rice crispy treat mixed with like a, a crunch bar. Remember it's got those little rice bits in the exactly. chocolate. It's kind of yeah. like that. So just a healthier version of that. It's packed with plant protein. It's got all the different tags that make sense for the modern consumer. No gluten, uh, vegan, only vegan. And it's packed with protein and under 200 calories, about 170 calories a bar. So speaks to the modern consumer for sure. Yeah, the snacks industry is really interesting because I remember just a few years ago, it was this big health wave where people just wanted these low calorie, low macro snacks and people weren't really too thoughtful around the taste of it. It was like, if this is healthy for me and it fills me up, I'm going to eat this thing. And now- If it crunches. If if it it crunches. crunches. And now just a few weeks ago, there was that big deal that happened with Smuckers, right? And big industry trend there was like, America loves sugary snacks. So I was like, in just three years, entire consumption uh, behavior has changed in in how Americans look at this food, right? So really interesting that he's found kind of the right combination between between healthy and actually tasty, right? Because I feel like tons of these protein style bars just taste so bad. Like they they actually suck to eat. Yeah. Well, he describes it as a healthy indulgence. Yes. Which is essentially some way of saying that it's kind of bad for you, but it kind of isn't. I feel like I just want to go up to CPG entrepreneurs now if they're building a food product and be like, oh, you don't have a crunch? (laughs) (laughs) Short the business. (laughs) Dude, that I'm a start a VC firm in CPG and it's only going to be on the crunch. Okay. It's like the thesis of the firm. Um, But no, he actually has some some really unique flavors and excellent packaging as well. All important parts of a, a CPG brand. He says, unless your product is absolutely unequivocally better than the competition, uh, you will not win in CPG. So, you know, what a few flavors, Japanese matcha, vanilla, Peruvian, cocoa, peanut butter. He's combining different kind of influences from around the world. There's a Mexican hot chocolate flavor as well. And he's he's bringing it to the, the protein bar space. So, you know, it's a category with, I, I guess, it's been quite boring in vanilla, fruit and, and oats and, and things like that. But he's He's spicing it up a little bit, making it feel artisan in, in a way, you know? Yeah. I mean, it goes back to the trade-off between aesthetic of the packaging and bringing in different flavors. And again, it has to taste good because yeah. food, again, is one of those things where, you know, the packaging might invoke the interest. It may right. bring the awareness and right. people may try it. But if it's not actually tasty or it's not good, people won't keep buying, right? Yeah. And so that's the the nut he had to crack, and it seems like he has. Um, but it seems like this game is one in retail. Um, like, yeah. yeah, you have to start in e-commerce because it's the easiest entry point into the industry. To proving your product Absolutely. is something people want to eat. Yeah. yeah. And there's tons of really unique ways. I mean, I love the strategy that some of these D2C style entrepreneurs do, which is um, they don't even have a product at this point, they just have the really nice packaging and they have the pitch deck, they have the nice design. And then, you know, they go promote and they get everyone to come in and sign up on a wait list. And then based on that, they will actually go manufacture the product. So if you actually want to build a massive consumer brand of any kind, you still have to look at retail as your North star and you have to crack that market. VCs eat pitch decks. Consumers eat the crunch. (laughs) (laughs) You should get Griffin to pay you for that. No, but I appreciate the mention about retail. I was surprised by that. I was like, wait, don't you need to do years in the trenches of online selling? But let's be real. Everyone's on Twitter's like, you got to be in the arena. All right. (laughs) And in a food, you have to be in the fucking grocery store. That's the arena, right? Like that's the, the stadium. 
Um, you know, obviously a lot of brands have, have kind of come up and they're selling online and they're buzzy. But unless you're competing with, you know, one of five reaches to the top five snack bar brands, you're not a contender, right? And you need to be in retail. You need to be moving mass amounts. No one, Because the 85 to 90% of grocery shopping still occurs on premise. I thought that was interesting to learn about because he actually got into retail pretty quick off the bat. I was like, oh, like you probably were selling online for a year or two. He's like, no, we did it about the same time. Trying to penetrate both. Yeah, that was an interesting insight. He kind of highlighted two things, right? There's two ways that you can find your way into retail. One is you fill a gap for the retailer, right? So mm. it is maybe an emerging product or trend that a lot of their consumers are looking for, and there's not many options there, right? So to fill a gap, they're, fill more, a gap. they're more likely to take a chance on a new product, even if it's not, you know, you're not super established, you haven't been around for several years. Um, so that's one way to do it. And this other way is just brute force, right? So you're doing so well that they cannot ignore you. And I think liquid death is probably one of those examples, right? It's just water in a can. Mm -hmm. But at the end of the day, like- Truly a branding play. It's truly a branding play and consumers love it. It is everywhere. So yeah, they probably will find some shelf space to, to put your product into, right? So again, yeah. it's either you fill a gap or you just do so well in a hyper-competitive space that they have to pay attention to you. Let's talk about hyper-competitive because the snack bar market is one of the most competitive, but I like the thesis that Griffin was taking to the industry and in that, yes, it's the hardest to break in, but with the most risk and the most friction up front comes the most reward on the back end. So I just want to talk about some of the merger and acquisition activity in the CPG space. Uh, Smuckers just bought Hostess at a 51% premium to its market cap uh, of around 3.7 billion. They bought Same. it for, for over $5 billion. Wow. And it's driven by this... I. Uh, uh, characteristic of this particular snack aisle, which is they're very high velocity products. They move a ton of fucking volume. Uh, they're also bought frequently and the category has grown tremendously over the, the past few years, uh, specifically around healthier types of snacks that are again, healthy indulgences, but you know, with Twinkie and, and, uh, whatever bobos dodos whatever they have yeah it goes My back to what i'm saying eat that, right? eat that shit yeah, yeah like sugary snacks are back in yeah. and and these big brands are realizing this mondelez bought cliff bar for 2.9 billion which is a great comeuppance because the founder wow. gary erickson of cliff bar refused to sell for 120 million in 2000 i think to quaker oats to quaker and he sold to, to mondelez last year for 2.9 billion which is just insane i mean it's just it's a bar it's uh, Mars bought Kind Bar for five billion, making Daniel Lubetsky a billionaire. This is a crazy category, right? Because once a snack bar becomes that between meal habit for a consumer, it's going to stick, right? It's going to go to the kids' lunchbox. It's it's a sticky, sticky product. These products also have really long shelf lives, yes, right? So yes. that's a, that's a big value add. And I think <clears> the multiple that Griffin told us it's three to five x revenue, right? Yeah. That's what they sell for. That's, that's pretty impressive. Yeah, I mean, like. It's not software, but no. like might be the next best thing if you look uh, at it from after that agencies standpoint. and media. Yeah, <laughs> it beats agencies and media. Yeah, for sure. What do you think? Probably harder to start though than software. Yeah, I mean, so many logistical issues you have to figure out, right? And yeah. you're just probably spending all your day negotiating with buyers and just getting someone to take a chance on you. Mm -hmm. um, one thing that I thought was really interesting is the unit economics around this. So Griffin's advice is if you're trying to create a dry snack, you need to be able to attain 50% gross margins, including trade spend. 
And trade spend is when you go in the store, yes. you see those yellow stickers, right? So it's almost like a discount. And it's like, hey, you can buy one for, say, $3.39, or you can right. get two for five. So right. trade for spend is reflected in that. And it's five. in the product placement. Like getting on eye level is the gold standard, right, for brands. And yeah. I think I, you never think about that this, these grocery store shelves are, are advertising categories, right? right? They're literally ad units, ad products, right? Every little geographic kind of move up on the... Uh, on the axis of the grocery shelf. Exactly. I would also say that if you can't get to 40% gross margins, even in the very beginning, like probably makes sense to go try a different idea or go try a different product because Mm. you're not going to be able to grow into margins that are sustainable in consumer. And I've heard this feedback over and over. Um, So at the very beginning, try to aim for at least 40%. And over time, you want to get over above 50. So those are those are healthy margins. Dude. Healthy margins. I yeah. was like, damn, like physical product grocery store. I was like, ah, it just feels like there isn't much of a margin to be made. But I guess I was thinking more with like heavy products and stuff. I mean, yeah, 50% is, is very, very healthy. It may be a healthy margin, but there's also a lot of price sensitivity, right? If slight increases in price, even in a wealthier demographic, it can be a more affluent base. Yeah. It actually makes a big change. Like people will stop buying (laughs) your bar if if it gets even just slightly more expensive. And I thought that was interesting. Like, oh, 50 cents more for this bar I love up. Goodbye. Like, I don't want to, I don't want to buy that shit. Yeah. (laughs) You know, what's funny. I was in Whole Foods the other day and Somehow. That's just so hard to imagine. <laughs> yeah. Like, did you get lost? I, I was lost. I was lost. I looked around and I was like, all this healthy food. I don't know what to do with myself. <laughs> but no, I was stuck in this maze. I go all the way back, happened to come across some familiar ground. It was the Indian food aisle. And in the Indian food aisle, I see this product that I'm familiar with. It was kettle and fire. Okay. And it was, it was a bone broth. Uh, Justin Maris, he's huge on Twitter. And I believe this business does high eight figures or nine figures in sales a year. You're saying someone, a Twitter entrepreneur built something that you can buy in the real world. Yes, you can. It's crazy, right? No, but this dude, (laughs) this dude's a legend. And I was sitting there and I was thinking like, wow, like this is not a easy to find product in the store. Right. Like it was it was kind of thrown in this aisle that I don't imagine gets a lot of foot traffic. Right. And it was like stuck between all these other products. And I was like, the fact that this business probably does nine figures of sales is crazy. So I looked around and I was like, everyone who has a brand here is probably rich as hell. Like <laughs> the, the, everybody's killing it. If you yeah. are in Whole Foods, you're probably doing relatively well. And I thought that was kind of an interesting insight. Even the most obscure brands that find their way into retail, like that's a huge milestone. You mentioned uh, don't go into D to C if uh, you can't get to that like good margin, like 40% margin in a dry good. Yeah. Another thing is you can't get into this industry if you're not good at at building relationships. Um, If you're building like a software tool or something, yeah, you can sit in the beach in the Caribbean and just do it all yourself and you know, you'll be fine. But like with CBG, you depend on large chains. You depend on co-packers and distributors. You uh, depend on... uh, you know, marketing partners, right? So there's a lot of stakeholders that you need to work with and get on your good side because it's very competitive to get get into these stores and you need to be a, a go-getter and you need to be good on your feet. You need to be energetic. You need to be able to drive around, get to the store, talk to the manager, send the emails. 
um, you know, Griffin was telling us how a lot of entrepreneurs probably try and find the buyers at these companies. But he said, fuck it. I'm going to go straight to the CEO. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And that's something we've emphasized a lot on this podcast is stop fucking with this. Like go to the real decision maker. Because if it, you all, we all know if an email comes downstream from the CEO, people are moving on that. He's clearly working smarter. He passed up all the mid-level players and he went straight to me, right? That takes some level of courage and conviction as well, mm -hmm. right? So if he can do that, there's probably a good chance that they will figure this out, right? They will resort to any scrappy tactic necessary yeah. to make this business a success. So yeah. sometimes I, to be successful I think it's in a show of faith. Sometimes to be successful in business, all you need to do Copy the tactics of a 17-year-old <laughs> podcaster. Exactly. <laughs> Straight to the CEO, sir. Straight to the CEO. Can I interview you on my CPG podcast? Oh, got the crutch. <laughs> <laughs> wait, wait, sir. Are, sorry. Wait, let me I'll turn up the my mic. Sorry. New microphone. <laughs> uh, that's good. I do like that point, though, because if you can be the person who initiates that relationship, because a lot of people will try to have their distributor pitch to the retailer on their behalf, right? And now they hold all the power. So you need to be the one actually pitching your on your behalf. You need to be controlling that narrative. You yeah. need to find the story that's most compelling. Yeah. Um, and I think it goes back to just taking that initiative. And, yeah. and it's important to get your brand and name in front of as many people as possible. So your moral of the story is just fuck middlemen. Yeah, uh, always. Dude, I feel like distributors are like the, uh, the middle, the, Pharmacy benefit managers of pharma. It's like, bro, <laughs> why do they have to exist? <laughs> I also want to talk about getting aligned with the strategic early. Uh, Griffin's and Mondelez's accelerator. Obviously, Mondelez, the multi-billion dollar uh, largest CPG company in the world, owns you know some of the most iconic brands, um, like Swedish Fish, for example. Um, <laughs> I don't That's know why an iconic I brand. I don't care what else they sell. They got Swedish fish. <laughs> I, look, I'm a consumer of Swedish fish I here and there. Well. Reminds me of when we're working uh, with Morning Brew in the earlier days, right? We were aligning ourselves with ideal acquirers from day one, right? Um, and and working with them from a sales capacity, advertising capacity. Um, and I feel like it's important to get those relationships seeded early. Uh, I think we've mentioned this before, but sometimes the best way to open a door to a future acquisition is to work in some capacity with the dream acquire, whether it's them investing in your round, whether it's hanging around their offices, whether it's working with them on a commercial level, uh, it can open doors down the line, especially as you build like a lot of internal like uh, interest in what you're doing. Yeah, I think the right incubator can make a lot of sense. Like this mm -hmm. is a feeder to a future potential Mondelez acquisition, right? right? So um, you see this in pharma, you see this in a ton of different industries. I think the trade-off you have to make in the early days is, you know, you're probably going to have to give up equity at a, at a point. Um, Do you where, think those firms are sharky about equity? Uh, to some extent, yeah. Yeah. I think it just depends on what you're selling. Right. Maybe maybe less so in consumer. I mean, I think it's, it's less risky. Like it's the, if the unit economics on paper makes sense, like that's good. You don't have to deal with you know, huge issues like you would in pharma, right? Like there's not, you don't, you don't deal with the same kind of risk there. Uh, tell us about the next story, bro. I'm ready for the next one. Yeah. Let's hop into the next story. What if I told you that there was a guy who was doing small gigs on Upwork just to cover his bills and not even three years later, he's bootstrapped a cybersecurity firm to over $6 million in revenue per year. That's insane. It's crazy, right? Yeah, so it's my friend Taylor Hersom, and he has a really cool story. He started out at Deloitte after graduating college and just happened to get a lot of exposure to cybersecurity and IT engagement. So, you know, after a while, like most young people, he realizes working at a big four company isn't 
all it's cracked out to be. So, you know, he wants a little more risk. He in doesn't want to be like Seamus and be the the bear at Deloitte. No, he does not want to be the yeah. bear in Deloitte. Yeah. Yeah. So he wants a little more risk in his life. And he joins a small startup in Austin as the chief information security officer. They're commonly known as a CISO. Um, and he gets a real glimpse of what life is like in the management role, like actually running a company. And what's interesting is a week before COVID, he decides to leave and go down this route as a freelancer. So he starts an Upwork account and realizes very quickly that Upwork is a game that is won in reviews. So the more five-star reviews you get, you'll rank higher on the platform and you get exposed to way more opportunities. So he prices really low in the beginning for these cybersecurity engagements and gets a bunch of five-star ratings, increases his prices, and starts making some serious money. But he realized the real opportunity here. These startups that are contracting him for this cybersecurity consulting work all face the same problem. In order to bid for enterprise jobs with, say, like a Walmart or another big company, they all have to meet different security requirements. So Taylor realized he could build a huge business just standardizing some of these programs and systems he was putting in place at these companies. So his company, Eden Data, is now projecting to do over $6 million a year in revenue, and they've just barely scratched the surface. So a ton of room for him to run, and I'm super excited to jump in. You're telling me a gig economy work at Upwork can lead to a multi-million dollar company? I think it can. I think people probably also make millions on Upwork. Like You, you think so? I, I don't even think you have to leave the the platform. I do think their fees are pretty high, which is why people try to get off super quickly. It's They take a pretty hefty cut, but I think there are people making some serious money on there for sure. So big lesson I'm taking from Taylor's story, find what you can't do, what a company can't do in-house or it doesn't make sense to do in-house when yeah. you think about a service business. Right. If you're like a five to a hundred percent startup, you're not hiring a chief security officer. I mean, that's like maybe what like a fucking MGM resorts would do or like a you know, a Marriott or a uh, Equifax, right? Like they need a chief security officer, but like small companies don't need that. And when you think about like the things founders need to do and be good at themselves is like sales, product, uh, early stage marketing, focus on the user, uh, basic accounting and formation. None of them are going to be literate in cybersecurity, right? right? Right. It doesn't make sense for them to, to learn the muscles that you need to develop a good rigid framework around your business for cyber. So he's coming in and providing like a major value add. And what he described is this is a very reactive industry and that something bad will happen and then people will come to him. But the big opportunity that's, that's arising is the industry is going to shift from being more reactive to being proactive. And that's a big shift because once it's more proactive, people come earlier in the pipeline to like, okay, I got to set up my LLC. Now I got to get uh, Taylor's company to help me with the cyber. And I think that's how his business will grow. Even though right now it's a lot of reactionary responses, the more cyber attacks that happen, the more these get publicized and the more rigid companies become, especially as things move more to the cloud and things get a little bit more dicey in terms of security, right? Yeah, especially with these massive amounts of data with these AI models and stuff too. Like it's, they're going to be more rigid. So I think he's on a great industry track. Yeah, cybersecurity for most businesses is an afterthought, right? Yes. They're not actively thinking about it. And I actually like the way he approaches it, which is he's not using some fear-mongering tool, which is your business is at huge risk if you don't implement right. these systems. He positions it as a revenue driver. So yes. that's actually the real key here, which is these startups have to meet these security requirements to win these enterprise jobs. So he essentially says, let's help you go do that. And I think that is a much more effective approach than, hey, you're going to get hacked one day. 
um, or like look at all these other companies that get that get hacked, right? right? Like I think it's a more positive way to actually go pitch this. And I want to talk about the positioning because there's a few different things about this industry that make it so appealing. So the first being that there isn't any standard data privacy law on the federal mm. level, right? So, you know, because of that, all of these companies have different security requirements. Wild you West. Could, you could go to two companies in the same industry and one may have 50 requirements and the other may have 75 or 80, right? And on average, most of them have over 100 different requirements. So there's no cookie cutter strategy. So mm. that, that again is great from a revenue side um, because he's targeting these small companies, like you said, up to 500 employees. Um, and they need this to, to actually go win those jobs. The second thing, because it's an emerging industry and government hasn't quite figured out how to regulate it just yet, these requirements are going to be evolving, right? They're going to put some law out there. They're going to put more procedures or statutes out there, and they're going to change. So they're going to go to Taylor where he's going to be the source for them to say, hey, these were the guidelines in place before. This is how it's changing now. Here's what you need to do with your business to position yourself better for the future, right? So they're going to rely on him, less likely to churn. And then the last thing that I think he does really, really well, when one of his clients manages to win a contract, they're not paying him a one-off implementation fee. They have to retain him for the duration of the contract. So this means monthly retainers, and we love that, right? So they're they're paying him anywhere between four to twenty k a month um, for him to be able to implement these procedures and these systems in place, so they can continue with the contract, right? Because I think it's the moment they, if they were to let him go mid contract, they would lose the contract. So you know, it's it's kind of a great opportunity and a great thing going for him. Right. I want to touch on the first thing you said first, which is. Uh, he found a way to connect to revenue. Yeah. I don't care what you're selling connected to revenue, right? Like if you're selling to a business, if you're not driving new revenue for them or cutting costs, you are not going to be given the time of day or be given a speedy sales cycle. It, do it doesn't matter what it is, right? Like if I'm selling office plants, that office plant better increase employee satisfaction by 24%, which leads to a 30% increase in margin, right? That's what the, the men upstairs care about, right? It has to be a need to have. It can't be a nice to have. And that's what, say, yes. the same agency and yes. marketing is, right? But even if you aren't a need to have and you're a nice to have, like try and soup it up a little bit to get close to being on the need to have side versus the nice to have side. Yeah, so a big thing here is gonna be the pricing because every company is gonna come across this big trade-off. It could be marketing, it could come across any other industry, which is, hey, should I hire or go with this agency who's the subject matter expert or should I bring in a full-time person and bring them on internally, right? So your pricing has to be somewhat relevant mm. and in line with that because if you price way too high, they're not going to go with the agency. They're not going to go with your firm. It makes way more sense for them to just hire a full-time person, right? So it seems like a lot of this agency works. The sweet spot seems to be between four to 10K, depending on what it is. And I, this seems to be in line. I do think people can get away with charging more at some of these bigger enterprise yeah. jobs, bigger companies. But I think if you're targeting startups and you're downstream, you have to be really cognizant about pricing because again, mm -hmm. scarce resources and you know, they're, they're going to make sure that there is some ROI attached. Yeah. I was just, uh, this story reminds me of, uh, an entrepreneur we covered on like the main page. His name's uh, Jay Chowdhury. So he started off like walking to school four miles just to go learn from a teacher under like a grove of trees in India, um, makes it to the U S and notices that as the internet grows, so will cyber attacks. So 
He builds this company in the cyberspace called Secure IT. He sells it. But then here's the strategy, right? Whenever a new technology emerges, he builds the cybersecurity solution for that new tech. So <laughs> he did it with wireless networks. He did it with email. Then he did it with e-commerce purchases online. And then he did it with the cloud, right? So the man just keeps repeating this playbook of like whenever there's a new tech technology or something, there's got to be someone who's, who's able to secure it, right? And I thought that was a, an interesting parallel with his story. I want to speak to the Wild West thing. I think when you're in an industry that is growing and is a Wild West, there's a ton of opportunity. If I were to tell you that I'm an electrician and um, every single building that we're in has a different socket for plugging stuff in, like one's 12 volt, one's 50 volt, whatever, like I can't really automate that. Like I like there's a reason why there aren't a bunch of companies that are doing what ta uh, Taylor does um, at like a software level. You need humans for this flexible, customizable viewpoint, right? There isn't anything cookie cutter here that can be automated. You, yeah, That's why there's right. an opportunity for an agency is you got to find businesses that, that the technology can't fully automate or at least automate up to 60, 70% because that's when you do need the kind of flexibility that can get you the premium on your monthly retainer, right? Like that's the kind of space that you need to be in. And when there's a wild west, there's a lot of smoke in the air. You're finding things you're going through right? There's just a lot of opportunity to, to be had. I think that whenever you're approaching an industry where standardization hasn't happened yet, but like you expect government action in some way, like imagine the cyber firms in the UK when GDPR happened, right? There was probably like a, a feeding fest, like some National Geographic uh, sharks eating a school of fish type thing. I think if you position yourself as a full suite service though, that's where you can unlock a ton of value. Because if you can go to a business and say, I can fix and implement systems across all of your cybersecurity issues or problems that you're currently facing, way easier for them to just work with one firm than three or four different firms, right? right. Especially when there's a hundred different requirements around like, hey, how are you going to protect our data? How are you going to go about background checks, right? And it's like, if you can be that one partner that they can work for, work with across every issue they face, well, they're now less likely to churn and there's going to be much higher switching costs involved. Um, one thing that I thought was really interesting is he has done an amazing job with partnerships. I don't think he does any outbound. I think it's all inbound and what he's what done. What a life. What a life. Life is good in the cybersecurity world. Um, but what he's done is he's essentially partnered with big cybersecurity firms who've raised a ton of money. So like the, the two companies he gives an example of are Vanta and Drata. Um, and VC-backed companies, they're deploying huge sales companies, and they needed an implementation partner. Well, here comes Taylor and Eden Data, where he can be their implementation partner. So they're going and finding all this new business, and now they need someone who can go implement this business for mm. them and, and actually implement these systems. And they send him all of this business, and it just comes, you know, sitting in his lap while he's yeah. in his chair. You know, it's life this is This is the Noah Tucker playbook. <laughs> uh, I'm going to call it the... Um the luggage compartment strategy, right? Like the plane's taking off, yeah. right? But like you can jump in the luggage compartment and you'll freeze to death on the way up. But like you're with a rising tide, right? You are with a rising tide. You're a, you're a castaway, you're a stowaway, right? So attach yourself to larger businesses that are driving the growth in the industry. Look, let's just change the narrative, okay? Le scraps are not for lesser males. Scraps are for scrappy <laughs> entrepreneurs, <laughs> okay? <laughs> Take what comes down. Have a feast yeah. because it's still more than the guy next to you. Yeah. One other thing I love about Taylor is he's positioned himself as a thought leader in the space, and that's unlocked a ton of opportunity. I think a lot of people think about, hey, if I create content, 
and I give out the playbook, well, I'm just creating competition for myself. Like this is this, you know, opportunity that has come across or this arbitrage and I should be in the position to take advantage of it. Right. And that's kind of a short term mindset, but he's effectively giving out the playbook and he's very intentional about sharing out why this is so important or how businesses can tackle this, this issue that they're facing that when he was creating LinkedIn content, somebody from AWS reached out. And they were like, hey, I think what you're doing is really interesting. Let's hop on a call. He hops on a call with this guy and it ends up being the head of startups at AWS. And they were like, hey, you know, you seem like you you've got your shit together. You know what you're doing, essentially. Amazon is putting out this big cybersecurity initiative to help out these startups. And we would love to have you as an implementation partner, too. Right. So he just unlocked a huge partnership with Amazon just for putting out a LinkedIn post. So it goes to show that, like. Yeah, you may bring out a few new competitors, but there's so much opportunity to be unlocked that it could be a huge momentum driver for your business. Sales is hard. Find hubs, right? Find distribution hubs of other companies. You know, go to AWS, be the implementer for them. You know, I feel like there's it's hard to learn new technologies and it's uh, implementation's a tough thing. So human beings need to do a lot of this stuff. There's a lot of s- complicated stuff out there. I think there's a big opportunity for young entrepreneurs whether it's in the AI space or what have well, you, that's what I was to go out and implement yeah. different tech products for companies that share more or less like some relationship to like AI is a good one, cyber is a good one. I think there's a lot of opportunities for young people in this space. AI is the clear one, right? There's so much money going into AI. There's so many new firms um, yeah. that are setting up shop. There's so many new softwares. And education is like, the hardest part. Education is the hardest part. So again, being an implementation partner where it's like, hey, this is the issues that your business faces. And here are the best softwares that you should be using that leverage AI. And I'll help you implement this for your company. Dude, Seamus built a freaking $5 million plus you know, revenue per year company for doing, software platforms that had been around for 20 years. Yeah. And that was an, a super old industry. It wasn't even like new or emerging. Right. I know. And he's just, uh, he's taken that one part and he's made a big business out of it. What's the lesson find, uh, industries where it doesn't make sense for people inside the company to give a shit on, to try and learn it or understand it. Well, or I think hire it's, for it. I think it's find sexy industries and do the unsexy work that no one else wants to do which is Mm. everyone is thinking about creating the new billion dollar software. No one is talking about helping companies actually use the software. And so I would say that would be the big takeaway from what Taylor is doing. That's a banger line, dude. Build a unsexy company for a sexy industry. Yes. Yeah. And I think most people would find cybersecurity daunting, but there's this clear formula in life, which is you don't need to be an expert. You just need to be good enough. You just need to be dangerous enough to know what you're talking about or being able to vet people who do know what they're doing, right? And that is what Taylor has done so well. So he has 22 full-time employees, but the genius in his strategy is he just hires from Deloitte and all these big firms that have invested so much resource, so many resources in teaching and educating their employees on cybersecurity and how to actually work with companies in that, in that space that when they do join Taylor's firm, he's also able to poach a lot of those clients because they're so used to working with a specific person that they don't want to go through the friction of trying to find (laughs) a new person and getting them ingrained with their systems and trying to teach them. It's way easier to just, okay, we 
we were spending this much money with this company. My favorite person just left. So I might as well just spend the same money, you know, with this other company. I still get to work with the same people and they already know everything and it's just going to be easier. So another Bro, little I, hack in that. I, I love business. Like where, what other space could a skinny blonde guy be described as dangerous in cybersecurity? <laughs> <laughs> Let's wrap up the episode. Thank you everybody for listening to another episode of our future podcast. This is an awesome resource. Make sure to subscribe on YouTube, leave us a review on any of the podcasting platforms. And remember you can listen as well as watch like you are right now. So whatever you prefer. Thank you everybody. We enjoyed being with you in San Francisco and peace out. Stay frosty. Stay frosty. <laughs>